very exciting times because you knew that if you could figure this out, you would make people's lives so much better. And that's probably been the most gratifying part of my networking journey that, you know, a lot of the code I wrote, my team wrote, it literally enabled billions and billions of people to get online and, you know, live their lives, work, study, learn, enjoy whatever they do. From Qualtrics Industries, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall, and on today's show, I'm proud to share my conversation with Gurdip Pal. Gurdip is a monumental builder whose constant curiosity, occasional audacity, and lifelong penchant for asking what, if, and why positioned him as one of the key creators of and contributors to the most foundational internet and communications technologies of the third industrial revolution. Now, in his 32nd year at Microsoft, Gurdip's turned his attention to the effective and ethical development of high-utility autonomous systems. Our conversation touches on the sources of Gurdip's fascination with technology, the inventive culture of Microsoft during the internet revolution, Gurdip's role in inventing technologies central to today's digital economy like TCP IP, VPN, and cloud-based communications, his personal reflections on working directly with Bill Gates, and a philosophy for moving from comprehension to creation that Gurdip has applied in his stewardship of technologies and teams for three decades and counting. Enjoy Gurdip Paul. I am here with Gurdip Singh Paul. Gurdip, it's an honor to have you. Thank you for being on the show. Jesse, thank you for having me. It's an honor for me as well. Gurdip, you are something of a human force multiplier in the world of technology and innovation. You're also a practical visionary who has helped to lay the groundwork for some incredibly important infrastructure and software, but you're also a really devoted and, and lovely teammate. We'll certainly unpack much of that today and give you a chance to answer those charges as we get into the conversation. But I'd really like to start with a simple question, which is just how do you frame who you are in your place in the world? You know, I, I believe that everybody has a purpose and, uh, it's not always clear what the purpose is at the outset, but, uh, you know, when you get to be sort of old and dodgering like me, uh, you know, some things start to become clear. And I think for me, uh, my purpose is to really look at what emergent technology, emerging science in the world, and to see how it can make all our lives better. And Gurdip, where did you discover that you had either the initial penchant to help make lives better or for technology? Did those unfold in parallel? Were they in sequence? Were they back and forth throughout your experience? Unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah, you know, I you know, I have to say uh, in this journey, you know, it's been very serendipitous. It's been accidental. It's been luck. It's been, uh, I think it was also the time. 
as I you know went through my undergraduate work, as I went in through my graduate graduate work, the thing that I had uh, was this curiosity. I was like this, you know, like a kid in a candy store, and, and I don't care what it was, right? I remember in grad school, I was uh, working on this project on distributed operating systems, and uh, and it was. You know, I was like so enthusiastic because I said, God, if we could do this, we could do that. and We could do this. And some of those ideas were crazy. And, you know, one would never do that. But it was just this, the possibility that you could do those things. I, I remember the spark sort of um, going off in grad school. I think it just, it happened to me largely because of the time that we were in when, you know, this whole computing and digital third industrial revolution was sort of taking off. And the environment that was in, whether it was grad school or it was uh, this place called Microsoft, which was, you know, sort of this hub of so much of the stuff happening around me. And Gurdip, where did you hone or where did you discover the curiosity as an essential attribute to who you are and who you would grow up to be? Yeah, I think the, the one moment... I remember was one of the first computer science classes I took in my undergrad school. We were, you know, sort of taking on like algorithms, introduction to algorithms sort of for the first time. And and the professor was asking, if you had to do this, what would you do? And I, it was amazing. I, I went into this zone where everything else disappeared around me and my brain was engaging on what this professor was asking. And it was such a simple problem. But I think that was the moment I got hooked onto computer science uh, as a problem-solving medium. And I, I remember I came out of that and, uh, and I was like, literally like, what just happened to me? I think that was probably the, the first moment I remember. But I have to say, you know, you know when I came to the U.S., uh, coming to grad school here, I was just blown away by the opportunity and the resources and everything that was happening around me. So I was like this, you know, fresh off the boat, kid with bright eyes, just getting excited about everything. And in some ways, I still am that that guy. I want to ask you about when you were getting ready to start your career at Microsoft. It was an, in, an intense and, and far-reaching kind of time of change in the world. What was your broader vantage point about what was happening and maybe where you fit in to some of the the change that was occurring? The thing that was happening was most amazing was this digital industrial revolution. I mean, I was like in the middle of this river, fast flowing river, and I was in for a joyride and I don't know why I was there, I mean, but I was there. And incredible stuff was happening around. I mean, this is the time when, in the world around us, the Mark operating system uh, was being built. This is what eventually all of iOS is now built on Mark. The PC, you know, Windows 3.0 was imminent. Um, processors were getting much faster. You know, Sun Microsystems was putting out workstations, which are these incredible things. There's a company called Silicon Graphics. And I was right in the middle of that. And it was just pulling you into engage and to do something. So it was at some level, it was this unbridled excitement and enthusiasm. But also, I think there was a responsibility that we had to do something with this. And I found that at Microsoft. What, what were the variables in the ecosystem that had to come together for you to be able to come in and be a, 
a participant in and eventually a, a leader in this technology revolution. Yeah. The, the, you know, the most, I would say the fundamental one for me was, you know, having this agency to do something, to speak your mind, to share your ideas. And to me, there was a moment, uh, I remember when I started in grad school, the first class was a, a class on uh, uh, computer theory. And it was taught by this professor, uh, his incredible uh, mathematician, these students were engaging the professors, challenging them. The professors were challenging mm -hmm. the students. And I can actually say something that is crazy. And then the professor will actually take time to either prove or disprove it or to like get me to develop it into a better idea. Like that was a breakthrough moment for me because I, I, I had not seen that in the, uh, of course, not only just going through college, but I would say in the macro culture uh, where I grew up and even looking at, you know, my parents and extended system around us, it was very, very, there's a very clear demarc between what you're supposed to do, what you question, what you don't question. Software. Software is the most incredible medium humans have never experienced a medium where you can create so much without having to invent new materials, without having to build machines, whether it, it just, the pace of innovation in software is like nothing else. And then thirdly, I would say, um, somehow the high-tech industry got permission to operate differently. You know, take a look at Facebook, for example, right? Like for the first 10 years, like they never made any money and they just raised tons of money and they burned tons of money. But the industry gave them permission to do that before they started creating gobs of money. Microsoft was like that. Microsoft was one of the first companies to actually experience that. Microsoft had created this way of operating where innovation was premium, things could be tried very fast, you could throw many things at the wall at relatively low, you know, pretty efficiently, and, and you could see some of them succeed. And I think that was the another very big element of, you know, how all this sort of happened. And Gurdi, what kinds of things do you think set the conditions for Microsoft at that time to show up as a little bit of a, a rebel in the capitalist architecture? You know, this is, a Jesse, a great question, right? I've come to realize that there are uh, two kind of things in the world. There are things that exist before. And if those things exist before, you have to leverage the learnings and the lessons. And you have to build upon all that and evolve it further. And then there are things which just don't exist before. I think what Microsoft stumbled into None of this thing existed before. And if if you ever find yourself in that place which didn't exist before, the worst thing you can do is to try to lean into lessons of something else and constrain yourself in this new place. It's a new way to think about innovation, what you create, how you create, how you operate, what culture, all those things, they uh, create a new. And I think Bill is... Uh, you know, culprit zero in everything that happened here. Um, um, and, you know, we, we've seen 35, 40, 40 years later what it is. Culprit zero. I, I love that. Gurdeep, I want to ask you about some of the specific innovations that you got the opportunity to drive or, or to help steward 
as you onboarded into Microsoft. I want to start with TCP IP, uh, one of the early opportunities you had at, at Microsoft. Now, TCP IP had been specified over a few years by researchers and by academics. It eventually became a standard. To get to a standard, you have to have not only scale, which you did, given the number of PCs running the Windows OS at that time, but also the technology that you're building truly has to be breakthrough. Can you talk about the handshake between the scale that Windows as an OS provided you and just the specific wonder and innovation in this thing of internet protocol that you drove? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a very interesting time. Um, You know, just to take us back, uh, in the early 90s, um, there was a company called Novell. And Novell was the early leader in networking. And what they had, they had a protocol called IPX. And they were pushing that. They were getting a lot of early enterprise traction. In fact, Microsoft was trying to play catch up with them at the time. Uh, So that is, you know, one important piece of context. Uh, The other piece of context is I had been working on uh, remote access uh, work at Microsoft. Um, First in a product called Land Manager, uh, which was our competitor for Novell's uh, Netware. And uh, the first technology I worked on was remote access, where you could dial up over a modem. So a lot was happening in this connectivity space. And, um, you know, people were trying to figure out how would this enterprise IPX, Netware, Novell thing would resolve with this crazy thing that was happening outside called the internet. There was this big air gap between the enterprise world, where all the money was, and this whole internet world where there was not that much money. It was a sort of the coalition of the of the willing, and 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 this air gap existed. Something interesting happened uh, even within Microsoft. Just to give you a sense, there were two camps. There was a set of people who said we should keep pushing IPX, we should embrace it, and we should really make it happen, and we should ride the wave, and you know we'll work with Novell and so on. And there was another school who said, no, I think we should bet on on TCP IP. And that was, by the way, I would say the weaker school. (laughs) This group had less agency within Microsoft. And my manager, of course, comes to me and says, hey, Gurdip, I want you to work on this TCP IP staff for remote access. And I, you know, my my face fell. Obviously, the cool kids got to work on IPX. I got stuck with TCP IP because, you know, hey, that was... Clearly, things were not <laughs> in the right direction for me career-wise. And I remember uh, Henry Sanders was one of the core architects for our TCPI work. You know, I worked with him and a couple of people, and there was just like four or five of us. We uh, built the TCPIP stack. Now, this shipped, actually, it shipped first in ND 3.51, but NT at that time was a very small operating system. Uh, and then, of course, we built into Windows 95. See, prior to that, if you were on Windows, you had to go buy a TCP/IP stack from somewhere, and you would install it on your machine, and, and it was just painful and a lot of missing pieces, and you couldn't debug it. And you know, if you're talking to a Mac, it would not work or Unix. So we shipped this standard uh, TCP/IP stack in Windows. It was late 1996. We were visiting, I think it was the Lawrence Livermore Labs, uh, right above University of California, Berkeley, uh, and there was a gentleman there called Van Jacobson. Uh, Van Jacobson uh, was one of the co-authors of the TCP's congestion control protocol. And it is, you know, piece of 
work. I mean, the whole world is running on that stuff now, right? I mean, he was a big mind. He was a scientist. And uh, so we went and had a chat with him. Uh, you know, he was very complimentary about our TCP IP work. Uh, at that time, I was the, the development manager for all of networking stuff. And so, you know, it was great to hear that from him. But uh, he said, you know, uh, people don't realize what role you played in making internet happen. So he, he shared two charts with us. The first chart was the number of machines directly connected to the internet. And the second chart was the packet size of, of packets on the internet. These are the communication packets that are going back and forth. What turns out, we shipped a specific protocol inside this TCP IP stack called Path MTU Discovery. MTU basically is the maximum transmit unit. That means that what is the biggest packet you can send between these two endpoints? And if you sent a big packet, and if a network segment couldn't carry it, it would fragment it. It would break it up into smaller, and then would reassemble on the endpoint. We added this protocol, which for the first time, and we were the first stack to have it, we would negotiate end-to-end, -end and we started sending 1,500 byte packets. Prior to that, to avoid fragmentation, every other TCP IP stack used to have 576 byte packets. He showed me that the internet traffic had shifted significantly towards 1500 byte packets. There is conclusive proof that on one hand, you see the explosion of the internet in terms of number of endpoints connected. And the second was that it was because of the TCP IP stack was shipped in, in Windows 95. And that was a pretty humbling moment. And you know, at, at that point, uh, TCP IP was mainstream, Windows 95 was mainstream, and we were just seeing an explosion happen right in front of us. Gordeep, to, to what did you then ascribe the success of TCP IP, which by rights at the time sounded like it was characterized as an underdog? Somehow you you turned the narrative around. How, how, how did you make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I want to be very clear. I mean, everything about the internet, the credit belongs to... IETF, it belongs to all the people who worked on the IETF protocols uh, way more than you know anything any one of us did at Microsoft. We delivered a great stack, which was an alternative to the IPX stack. We didn't go and say, we're going to do our own crazy thing with TCP IP. We were true to the standards. In fact, we added something, helped push some parts of the standards, which I think completed the story. But that's about extent of, you know, I would say credit we should take for mm. what this internet is. And the places where we extended is, I'll give you, you've probably heard of something called DHCP, Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol. Prior to that, you had to enter in an IP address. Only then your machine could be on the internet. We said, this is crazy. Why can't a machine just request an address when it boots up and get it itself and then get going? So this was like, a, you know, it was a usability thing. And I remember I was sitting in, in one of the IETF meetings and there was this gentleman, brilliant, brilliant man. He worked at, at Berkeley, I think Berkeley BSD, the Unix BSD 4.4. And he told me, why do you need this DHCP or this ability to get an address and use it? He says, you know what I do? It's very simple. I just open up this file, I type in the IP address, I rebuild the kernel, and my machine is on the internet. And I'm like, no, you know what? 
people sitting at home who are not technologists are never going to do that. There were moments like that where we, you know, we filled in some gap, but I would say we really lived off the bounty of this incredible work done by academics and researchers and some of the early technologists. So let me take you to 2001, Gurdeep, because this uh, hyper growth of, of the internet uh, would continue to be something that you and the team at Microsoft would, would play a role in with the release of XP, when Windows XP. Talk about what that experience was like and, and trailblazing not just the OS technology, but being the, the first OS that would really start to connect people in the citizenry beyond academia and inside the upper echelons of the private sector. Yeah. You know, one thing which has been really interesting to me is it wasn't, again, clear when we were going through it, but looking back at it, is that I felt that, you know, we had to cross this massive ocean. But whenever we, we wanted to take the next step, you know, a rock would come under our foot and we would step on it and then we would take the left foot up and another rock would emerge and we crossed this ocean. Like it started with remote access. The fact that you could dial up with a modem, you know, hey, I can dial up with a modem now. The next thing we did, great. Now it's broadband. It's a modem which always stays connected, but you're on the internet. Well, how do I connect to my corporate network, which was separate from the internet? Well, that's how VPNs emerged. And, and then um, when VPNs emerged, um, one of the things which happened is that we had to wire the entire operating system and the networking stack to deal with networks which came and went away. Because when you were connected, you had the network. When you were not connected with VPN, you didn't have the network. When Windows 2000 shipped, it had this plug-and-play capability. So devices, network cards could come and go, and you could have USB-attached network cards. You could remove them and walk away, and suddenly the network went away. So these, all these building blocks were already in place, and then we come into this technology called Wi-Fi. Now, this was, again, uh, Bill was very involved. Uh, he, again, driven by this idea that how can I make computing more accessible to people? Like, he was all over it, and he was just beating us up left, right, and center. Like, when are you shipping this thing? And we finally said, okay, Windows XP is is the next big milestone. And this was a tough project because the Wi-Fi standards themselves were not actually finalized. So you would get one chipset which would interpret the standard in one way, another would interpret another way. You would have chipsets would fail. The network drivers, what are the right network driver model to have for this? All this was being figured out. And we got it across you know the door and we shipped windows xp with it and you know the rest is history again very exciting times because you knew that if you could figure this out you would make people's lives so much better and that's probably been the most gratifying part of my networking journey that you know a lot of the code i wrote my team wrote it literally enabled billions and billions of people to get online and, you know, live their lives, work, study, learn, enjoy, whatever they do, you know, on that. What do you think it is within you that gives rise to being able to work your purpose of, you know, technology for bettering people's lives in that inventive sense? Why are you an inventor and a creator and a builder as opposed to 
someone who feels more hued to being a, a, a maintainer or a steward of something that maybe was built that you just find excellence in continuing to push forward? I would say it really starts with this a level of, you know, uh, optimism, stupidity. Uh, I think those <laughs> things are all kind of rolled into one. Because I remember one time, my manager's manager, after a while, he realized that I was completely incorrigible. And, and I would say, yeah, we're going to go present this to Bill. And he would tell me, I hope you're bringing your own parachute. And and this became his saying because he knew that I was kind of this crazy dude. And he, he would not make those bets. He would not put himself out on limb. You know, initially it was that, uh, you know, I didn't care. It was exciting. I was going to go do it. But later on, I realized that, you know, frankly, Microsoft and the culture that Bill had created here was actually going to reward that behavior. Now, I don't want to, you know, say that it was completely random, completely crazy. It was informed. And it was an informed push into a direction. Um, and uh, and I realized that that was uh, getting rewarded. Now, I am I would say I do think a lot before I pick, I'm still doing that. And, you know, that's the role I'm in right now. And even some of the, you know, my interests outside of uh, here are, I'm pushing, always pushing the envelope, but I just tend to do a lot more uh yeah, you know, research and think a lot harder now. In those days, it was just jumping into it and then figuring it out. And Gurdeep, how have you cultivated that kind of sense of um, whether it's optimism blended with with a, a certain brand of stupidity or or, or courage um, with the the you know degree of foresight? How do you cultivate that in teams that work for you, that work with you? as you've stepped into these successive generations of software innovations that you've been uh, having a front row seat for? I have this model. I call it the four C's model. The first C is comprehend. You know, if you go into any area, any device, anything you're trying to do, you have to understand what is happening there and as understand as well as you can. The next level is critique. You should be able to look at what works, what doesn't work. Uh, of multiple things which are in that space, which works better than the other and why and what's also. Once you understand that, then you create. And creation is like, okay, now how would I go do this? But there is one more level. It's called captivate. And very few people, very few creators are able to captivate. You know, and we know them, right? People like Steve Jobs. I mean, uh, people like Stuart Butterfield. I think it is the artists who kind of their quest is to make it past create and make it to captivate gurdeep i recognize we could probably do an entire episode of this podcast just on this question but i'll, I'll ask it anyway what was it like what is it like to work with bill gates he was a force to be feared i mean we all had stories of bill just chewing you out if he didn't agree with you or if you, uh, you know, said something crazy. I was pretty fortunate that, you know, I got chewed out a few times, but it was a few and far between. What I got to experience with Bill was really learning about innovation, uh, learning about really operating with confidence in uncharted waters. And the big thing I learned from him was big picture. And this is an area where I'm, I feel I'm much smarter in now than I was 25 years ago. 
you have to keep peeling back the onion and say what is the picture okay what if why what if why what if and you keep pulling it back and eventually you get the purpose of what you're trying to do you get the right scope in which to think about it he forced you to think about things at that level and i think a lot of people don't appreciate that about him he totally got it he connected the dots he was able to take this big picture and when you had the good fortune to work with him uh, on the early days of communications work i mean once a week i would be sitting with bill he was pushing us but he was an expert at the bigger picture so then extend for me up up the stack maybe uh, as you went from the networking software side into communication and and collaboration um mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how you got attracted to uh, to that part of the stack and and what some of the early visions you had were for the interconnectedness, not just of data and information, but of the way that people would fundamentally be able to augment and, and amplify the ways that they work together. I was tapped to take on this area because Bill thought rightly to some level, that one of the hardest problems you would need to solve to make communications work on the internet are actually networking problems. And he was absolutely right. Like some of the hardest things we had to cross over was how do you make jitter-free audio work on a very, very stochastic internet? Mm. And uh, and so his instinct was right. But he, 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 they tapped me to do this. And maybe I displayed some other crazy attributes, which I didn't know at the time, you know, but they, they tapped me. But it became clear that there was a completely different communication system to be built. And this system did not work around phone numbers. This system worked around identities of people. So we, I remember creating the slide and presenting it to Bill. In the middle was a person. The next layer around that was presence, which is, is this person available or not available? Are they in a meeting? Are they busy? Okay, which nowadays you see in communication tools, the presence away, online, busy, etc. And then we said, once you have this core system in place, whether you're making a voice call or a video call or you're sending a chat message to somebody, all those are just modalities. Once you found the person, you establish a session and you say, I want to do a voice call or I want to do a video call or I want to do a chat call. I want to do a meeting. We created this slide. This slide existed before any product existed. And I remember doing this presentation to Bill and the, all the, his directs on our communication strategy ought to be about this. And this was the, it was a very technically articulated vision of what we wanted to build. And I tell you, I got so much support. You know, we got a big team. I got to work with some other smart people at the right time. We did the right acquisitions. And that created Link, Skype for Business, and what is Teams today. While we were doing this, unknown to us, in a different part of the world, there were a bunch of crazies like me who were dreaming of building Skype. And there's a big lesson here, by the way. The lesson is that, and this also I learned from Bill, that if it is possible, if something starts to become possible and you don't move on it right away, you will miss it. 
Now, Microsoft was always sort of business and enterprise focused, more so than consumer focused. We focused on the enterprise side, Skype focused on the consumer side. We were able to leverage some constructs like the Active Directory, et cetera, inside the enterprise. They focused on other constructs. And in the same way, we said, we're going to build it as part of our office suite and all that. That was our superpower. Their superpower was, we're going to go after telcos. And these telcos are very, very regionally bound. And we're going to create a solution which works across all these telcos and you can call anybody and you don't you're not beholden to their you know business models and so on and they created that amazing thing and you know skype became a verb of course later point in my career we ended up acquiring skype i led that acquisition and ran it for a while and that journey was a really long complex journey because when i was running skype you know it was uh, at one point 40 percent of world's international calling traffic was going on skype and if you say, I'm going to go and change the fundamental architecture of Skype, and while all this is happening, and you're also building your Skype for business product or Link and Skype for business product, uh, it is just, complexity was just incredible. And we started on this multi-year journey. And that journey is why we have teams today. The entire backend is the convergence of Skype, scale, and all the enterprise capabilities. And now we have this cloud running service, which works on mobile, it works on your laptop, it works for consumer, it works for enterprise, all on one service. And Zoom is incredible and you know they uh, that's a great success story. But there's only like, you know, I would say a couple, three of these plants that exist in the world, which have the capability of, uh, you know, that level of communications and reliability and scale and so on. It's, it's truly remarkable to see the fruits of those kinds of labors. Um, certainly in, in the pandemic world, we would have been in a vastly different place had some of those doors not been opened. You know, I, I was talking to Satya a uh, little less than a year ago. We were talking about the pandemic and and we were the thing we were reflecting on is it's kind of another way of making the point that if something is possible, if you don't act on it, you know, you will miss it. I think that is also true here, right? Like if Microsoft had not scratched that itch that we need to bring communication, where would we be 20 years later when this world needed this thing? I mean, all the blood, sweat and tears and innovation and everything, it all got realized like last year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we saw glimpses of that. When I was running Skype, I mean, there was some incredible stories, you know. Uh, in fact, we had a whole storytelling of Skype uh, group um, where we had stories like this person, you know, uh, meeting their child for the first time over Skype and, you know, the last words you share with a loved one on Skype. Uh, and there was these incredible, powerful stories. But the pandemic has just made it like a mission critical, the world cannot go on without it kind of a thing. So Gurdeep, we've we've started our journey at uh, the networking level of the tech stack. We've gone into communications. I'd, I'd now like to go uh, closer to cognition and within the artificial intelligence domain, ask you um, what you see in the software world that's changing and, and is dynamic in wonderful and interesting ways that you think will generate some really wide open spaces of, of new opportunity for the economy, for companies, for individuals, uh, 
going forward? Um, you know, when I was in grad school, uh, we were still in the old world of AI, which is very rules-based. And uh, and then, you know, we, we sort of all experienced this thing called AI winter, where everybody lost faith in AI and, and, uh, um, and a lot of the funding dried up. And, you know, so even professors who were so-called working on AI moved on to other things and so on. And then um, something pretty major happened. It started happening, I would say, in the 2000s, uh, where this machine learning uh, started to take off. And, you know, I do make a bit of a distinction between AI and machine learning, but machine learning basically was that we suddenly had a lot of access to digitized data. Now, see, rules worked when you had no data. So you had to envision, codify how you believed a system should work through rules, and you had rules-based systems. When you had data, people said, you know what? We have these algorithms, which mathematicians had been working on for a long time, to find patterns and things. Hey, if you have a lot of digitized data, you know, let me just pull out whatever algorithm and I'm going to throw it at this data and I'm going to show some results. You know, we wouldn't have Google search and Bing search and all that if ML had not been viable and had real results. Mm -hmm. But then something amazing happened in the late 2000s. Uh, this professor... Uh, who had been working on deep learning, um, he showed some results in, in uh, using deep learning or deep neural networks. And he shook the whole community, which had been sort of plodding along with old school AI or ML and so on. And uh, that totally changed uh, the direction of AI. And it made many things possible that were just not possible before. And many of these benchmarks, like you know, speech recognition better than a human, translation better than a human, object recognition better than a human, all these benchmarks started to sort of fall. And we are living in the, the big moment of you know, deep learning and what is possible. And we are finally now aspiring to take on tasks that previously were considered not possible. And I think we are really in the midst of what I call the, the fourth industrial revolution, which is going to be driven by AI. And it is going to mm -hmm. fundamentally change the world around us. And what excites you the most about the applications of these um, general purpose or, or specified a AIs? I know there's a lot that you're personally working on. Maybe some of those are, are nearest and dearest to you, but perhaps you also have a broader commentary on what um, excites you the most, say, over the next decade or so. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm uh, I've sort of self-selected my way into an area right now, which I'm very excited about, which we broadly call autonomous systems. And I think there is a very practical value here, which applies to everything around us. We have partitioned the world into dumb things and smart things, and we have put ourselves in the smart things and everything around us into dumb things. Now, then you say, what is it about the smart thing which makes it smart? And why can't the dumb things be smarter? And the number one thing which pops is control. I now look at everything and say, why can, how can this thing be smarter? Like I came and sat on this table. Why did I have to pull the chair? When I stood here, why didn't the chair straighten itself and come and park itself behind me? Okay, so what prevented the chair from doing that? And it is actually control. We have partitioned the world so that we make everything around us dumb so we can control it. I believe we have gotten with AI to a place where 
this smarts can actually be put into the object itself. So it knows why it is there, how it is supposed to work, and it, it gets the job done. Imagine everything, every switch, every air-conditioned controller, you know, every tap, every light bulb, every machine, every computer, every camera, every table, every desk, everything actually has its smarts. It doesn't have to be infinitely smart. It doesn't have to solve math problems. It's just to straighten the chair and pull up. And so I think that is what is really exciting to me. I feel like the human race, it is a superpower. Like this would be the single biggest growth in our abilities. If we were able to make the world around us smart so that then we could self-actualize our way into other things like writing poetry or painting or other creative things or creating other, you know, new science and so on. Yeah, it, it strikes me that there is a mildly dystopian version of your four C's that has the same first three, comprehend, critique, and create, but that instead of going into the captivate lane, there are those who would try to wrest control as their fourth using either behavioral data or sentiment data or some amalgamated view of a person, a group of people, even a society to say, now this is going to be the thing that must occur next. And sometimes we know what that thing is. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's a conscious thing that's playing out. Sometimes it isn't, as we're learning with the way that social media technologies and, and other even hardware-based technologies can can have an influence on the way that the behavior shakes out. So I think you're right to think about this in a, a macro sense. What do you advise people who are thinking about this problem outside the technology realm to consider as some of the must-dos, given, to your point from earlier, if something's going to happen, it inevitably will. So we're not really guessing about what. We might be guessing about when, but we've got to think of how we're going to wrestle with this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really well-framed. I mean, now, when you do something, you have to look at the bigger picture. You know, at Microsoft, we, we have this whole effort on ethics of AI. And it is not fluffware, okay? It is so critical. I, in my role, for the first time in my technology career, I had an ethicist and an economist reporting to me. Why? Because work we were doing had implications in those dimensions. And we ran to them like literally, like we're not even out of the door and we ran into them. I'll give you one example. We were building this ambient computing solution where we could observe its sensors, you could observe a space, and then you could do all kinds of things with it. It was an amazing project. We said, hey, here's a simple idea. Why do people have to swipe cards? Let people walk in. Hey, with sensors, I can observe a space, and I know it's Joe, and it's Mike, and it's, it's Jill, and mm-hmm. okay, and I know that, oh, this person is actually not a Microsoft employee. So, uh, you know, we beep red flash, and they can be, you know, whatever mechanism to get them to register as a guest or whatever, and that so on. We ran into, like, right, this brilliant idea ran into number one issue. HR told us the employee agreement that is signed does not allow us to video <laughs> employees. So we said, well, then what do we do? So we worked with the lawyers, worked with HR, and we said, well, you could have an opt-out 
No, you could have an opt-in model for this. But then on top of that, we had to make sure this was fair. Can you imagine like if we were not able to recognize somebody on a wheelchair walked in, you know, drove in? Uh, I mean, that would be brutal, right? I mean, or somebody with some color of skin or gender or age or, you know, uh, some malformation, you know, whatever may have happened. And it, it would be brutal. So, so suddenly it, we had to think about it very differently than, oh, this, oh, let me just go quickly build this out. So I think thinking through and approaching it holistically is the best way that we can all, uh, you know, make progress here. Gurdeep, I want to go from the future uh, back to the past, um, specifically back to the day in 1987 when you flew from India to LA, connected up to Portland on your way to Eugene and the University of Oregon. If today you could write the Gurdip Paul of 1987 a letter and stick it in his luggage and have him discover it and read it on that flight, tell yourself anything at all with the benefit of nearly 35 years of perspective as a leader and as a builder and as a human being, what would you tell him? Don't hesitate in taking risks. Do the most that you can in this space. Don't have your own you know, things hold you back, which luckily I didn't have too many, but I, you know, I still could have done better. And seek environments, seek people where you can create the most, where you're encouraged, uh, where you're supported in in this process of creation. This has got to be, you know, one of the most amazing gifts we have as humans. The second thing I would say is that I learned this from my parents and my grandparents and that people matter. People you work with matter, how people feel matter. And you will never go wrong in treating people well. I've had relationships at work with people who came back to work with me again and again and again. And these are super smart people, smarter than me. And because of that, I've been able to do so much more myself. Uh, that is a lesson I would tell myself uh, any day. Uh, even do more uh, if you can. Uh, but those, yeah, those are two things I would say. Well, Gurdip, it's been a privilege. Thank you for all that you've done to make our technologies in this world more powerful and our communities more connected and our experiences with one another ever more delightful and meaningful. So appreciated and can't thank you enough for being with me today and sharing your story with our, our listeners. I think we'll all be better off for it. Jesse, thank you. Uh, you know, I think this was a wonderful conversation. Your questions were great. And I'm, uh, I hope that if somebody takes the time to hear this podcast, they don't see this as a thing where you know i'm really talking about myself i've been very fortunate i'm and lucky and i did happen to get on this path which has given me these experiences and i'm sharing them with the spirit that uh, others can get whatever they can get out of it and and do great things bigger things more amazing things so thank you Jesse. Thanks so much for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other listeners find us. And please, tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a production of the Industries team at Qualtrics. The show is written and hosted by me, Jesse Pierwall. Mastering by Nate Crenshaw. Post-production and music by Clean Cuts Audio, part of the Three Cs Collective. Design by Baron Santiago and Bensuka Shindavijak. Website by Gregory Haydon. And photography by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Jeremy Smith, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundin. Oh,